Hi everyone, welcome back to the Health Pod. If you are new here, this is a podcast about all things health and well-being. My name is Nishi and I will be one of four co-hosts this episode. I am joined with Melissa, who you all met before. Hey you guys, I'm Melissa. Welcome to the second episode of the Health Pod. And we also have two new team members, um, Nimasha and Randala. Uh, hi guys, I'm Nimasha. Nice to meet everyone. Hi, I'm Randila. Thank you so much for joining us in on the team. Um, so let's just get right into our first topic of the podcast. Okay, so in this episode, we will be talking about some of the myths and misconceptions uh, regarding nutrition and food. And each of us would be talking about one specific and one common myth regarding nutrition. And right now, the topic at hand, which I will be talking about, is relationship uh, between proteins and building muscles. Let me start off by asking a question. So what are the three sources of energy in our body? Maybe, Nishi, you can answer me. Yeah. So like your energy, you get from three types of macronutrients. You get it from first your carbohydrates, then your proteins, and your lipids, which is also fat. Exactly. All right, so uh, Nimasha, if I were to ask you uh, the order of uh, the energy consumption, or in other words, like what does the body depend on for energy first? Let's say when you're exercising. So I guess it'll be first your carbs, second. Lipids, mm. no? Yeah, exactly. And, the last and then the least would be the proteins because protein. you always want to conserve proteins. Yeah. Which is because proteins are stored in your muscles, right? So we basically want to stop our muscles from being dissolved into energy. This myth or the misconception is uh, believed by two set, uh, sets of people. The first group of people believe that protein and strength training uh, would be sufficient for you to gain bigger muscles. Mm-hmm. And the second group, and this group is like quite smaller compared to the first group, they only believe that you just need protein only to gain bigger muscles. You just eat protein and then somehow magically you can get bigger muscles. Right. Going back to the previous uh, myth I spoke about in our first episode regarding muscle soreness, let me uh, talk about that briefly here as well. Starting off with strength training, right? So when you lift weights, you're basically subjecting your muscle to some sort of external force it's not used to. So how the body responds, like how it responds to any change in anything in your surrounding, it will undergo these microscopic tears. And these tears will actually help the muscles to rebuild itself bigger and stronger. But let's say you don't have enough protein in your body and you do strength training. So you break down the muscle. How is the muscle going to build back up? Like, what is it going to use? you need the proteins as well. So basically we know it's a relationship. It's like a combined effort of both strength training and proteins. This myth or misconception regarding the proteins and stuff, it's basically prevailing in a lot of us because of how it's used by the media or maybe like companies uh, for their advertisement purposes or to sell their products or whatever it is, they've been taking this whole protein concept out of context and abusing it and basically conditioning us to think in such a way that just by eating a whole lot of proteins and maybe exercises, you can gain uh, bigger muscles. 
if i were to go out to the streets and ask a bunch of people what they think is important in building up uh, muscles majority would say proteins and a couple yeah. of them would say that you need exercises but most of us we are trained to think that we just need proteins to build up muscles and that mm-hmm. is why we take protein in the form of supplements or maybe the diet nishi do you have an idea like why you feel like this is wrong or do you agree do you believe this Okay, so I used okay. to know a couple of people that would just eat chicken throughout the entire day. Like that would be their entire meal, and and I get how someone might think that muscle is made of protein, and therefore you need protein. Also, people when they want to build muscles, they want to lose weight, right? Nobody wants to just have muscles and have fat. So it's like a process that goes together gaining muscles and losing weight. And what a lot of us think is that to lose weight we need to stop eating carbs and fats and just take protein so you can build muscles. This is like so further away from the truth like I can't even explain because it's it's basics, right? Let's say you've been exercising for a long period of time and you have used up your fat stores, your carbs everything is used up now and you are not and you have cut down on your carbs as well and fats thinking that you don't need them anymore because you are in the process of losing weight so when you suddenly start doing cardio or maybe even strength training what is the body going to use up for energy two things you are taking a lot of protein either the body can use that protein for energy so basically the whole purpose of eating proteins is lost you are not going to gain muscles The second thing is either that protein or the protein that is already in your body which is your muscles are going to be dissolved. Mm. So instead of gaining weight and building muscles you are just going to lose weight and lose your muscles and the definition all of that. But on the same note when we talk about eating carbs and fats I'm not talking about eating snacks and eating all those unhealthy type of carbohydrates and fats. I'm basically talking about the carbohydrates, the good type of carbohydrates you find in your whole grains, your beans, fruits and vegetables and when it comes to fat, right? So fat is what the body uses when you are doing a moderate intensity workout or a exercise of a longer duration. So we need fats as well. Basically the fats you find in fish, olive oil, fruits like avocado, are really good as opposed to all your saturated foods you get by eating fast food and all all the junk food and talking about this topic i was reading a few articles basically both studied the effect of strength training and protein on muscle mass and muscle strength so the first study i want to like pull up and give some numerical data this study analyzed the effect of protein supplements on resistant training induced gains in muscle mass and strength what they found out was in terms of uh, the mass of the muscle the control group who only engaged in the particular exercise the increase in muscle mass was roughly about 1.1 kg whereas the group which received the protein supplementation the increase was just 0.3 kilograms more than the control group so this is showing that resistance training is much more important compared to protein supplementation in terms of building up muscle mass that's why the yeah. difference is 300 grams it's 
actually yeah. negligible. And it also makes and, sense in terms of physiology now because proteins are basically made of amino acids and you have mm-hmm. essential ones and non-essential ones, meaning most mm-hmm. of them are non-essential. You can make it on your own. You don't mm-hmm. need to supplement protein, but you need them in terms of the non-essential ones. So yeah, that makes sense. And like I said, if you don't do resistance training, the muscle is not under, not going to undergo any tears, right? If you don't tear up the muscle, it can't rebuild itself uh, bigger and stronger. So of course mm-hmm. you need that. That is like the main element in muscle building. You mm-hmm. need to break down the muscle so it can undergo structural changes and then regenerate into something mm-hmm. stronger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And protein is like a supplement. You know, you just give the building blocks the muscle need, but doesn't mean you need to consume a whole lot of proteins. Sometimes the protein in your diet is enough for the muscles to build back up. Mm-hmm. And that same study in terms of the strength, right? So they measured the strength called, using this unit called 1RM. That is mm-hmm. the maximum weight a person can use to do one repetition of one type of movement. So in the control group that only engaged in the exercise, they were able to roughly lift about 27 kilograms and the other group that received the protein supplement, only um, the increase, uh, they were just 2.5 kilograms stronger. So that mm. itself is showing that for muscle mass and muscle strength, if we do strength training, it might take a longer time, of course, compared to coupling strength training and protein intake. Mm. But protein doesn't really have a huge impact in muscle building. Protein supplementation. Protein supplementation, the the protein shakes and the extra extra protein we drink, eat, Mm. whatnot. If you do the right amount of exercises and if you have an idea about how you do the exercises, for example, you can't be lifting the same weight for months and months. You need to at least increase the weight every two weeks or three weeks for the muscle to undergo changes. Otherwise, the muscle is going to get used to it. It's already adapted, no more structural changes, done. It's going to be static. Mm-hmm. I have already spoken about this. Yeah, in the previous one. <laughs> so the second study I wanted to talk about, which also analyzed the effect of protein supplementation on muscle gain and muscle mass and muscle strength. After three months, what they also found out was protein supplementation only slightly enhanced the gains in the whole body and upper body lean body mass, but not the leg muscle mass for some reason. That's so hard. And in terms of the strength, even though the previous study actually analyzed the strength and they were able to find out like a 2.5 kilogram uh, difference, this study, study actually showed that there is no difference in the strength between the control group and the group who got the protein supplement. So in conclusion, both these studies showed that in order for us to build bigger muscles, What is more important, I'm not going to say this is the only thing that you should do. What is more important is your strength training exercises and not just consuming a whole lot of protein, thinking that that's the way to go about it because that's what you hear on a day-to-day basis, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you hear in the media. That's what you hear other people telling you. And if you want to really gain muscles, I feel like getting some advice from someone who has experience and who has some knowledge, for example, a physical trainer is a good way to go about it because 
they know what's right and wrong and they know like what we see is just the tip of the iceberg we look at things superficially see people just eating proteins and working out and we think oh yeah that's the way to gain muscles but there's so much more that we don't see so much more details that they know and that they are doing but we have no idea for example your carbs and fats of course the bodybuilders are paying attention to it right and in terms of the exercise they're not doing the same exercise they're not using the same weight and also the rest period your rest period is very important for your muscles to heal if you keep on exercising and not let the muscle heal obviously it's not going to work right so mm. the best way i think for anyone to build muscles is to just either read about it properly i don't know get some help like go to a fitness trainer get some advice and pay attention to your exercise and pay attention to your diet as well because don't just consume a lot of protein don't pay so much money to buy protein supplements whereas you know that there's so much other things which matter and uh, take note of your carbohydrates where you get your carbohydrates from if it's like flour based uh, items i don't think that's really good you have to focus on your grains and your vegetables and your fruits and even fats you need to consume the right type of fat and the right amount of fat so the body has something for it to depend on when you are doing an exercise and whatever the protein you take will be used up for muscle building so anything in extremes is bad for you for something yeah. to be sustainable we need to do it in moderation the moment we go to an extreme it's just going to last a couple of weeks we are going to get fed up the body is going to get fed up and that's just going to be the end of it so as long as we eat in moderation we exercise in moderation and we know it's sustainable we know that our body can take it up then yeah yeah and everyone is so unique obviously there's a overarching broad mechanism through which human bodies function but the extent to which something's done and something's not done is unique to the person so to tackle it in in a way that's not harmful for your own body the best way to move ahead is going to people that are educated on these areas and people with proper certification i think is important as well because a whole lot of what you see on social media is also branded content they get paid for for the sponsorship whoever you all follow make sure that they are properly qualified they have the appropriate education in that area and that would be a, a good way to move forward really and don't eat like a lot of protein thinking that it's going to be that that's not how it, it's always the media twisting the the sounds yeah, right that's right all their protein supplements their protein blends their protein shakers their protein shakes anything for you sure. are also conditioned to think oh yeah the more protein you eat the bigger your muscles are going to be so why not pay like a couple of hundred bucks and eating is much more easier than going to a gym or actually buying weights and doing and putting in the effort yeah yeah um okay then let's move on to the next myth so i'm going to be tackling the second myth for the day which is the notion that carbs are unhealthy so this is quite a broad myth meaning that the myth we have come to believe is due to a whole host of other sub myths that again has been spread through mainstream media so i don't know if you all have seen these on like facebook 
Instagram or, or these magazines you see on the aisle when you go grocery shopping, but some of them include carbs make you gain weight, following a low-carb diet helps you lose weight, mm-hmm. you are better off just eating meat than carbs going off of Melissa's mm-hmm. first myth. The, the latest one is the fact that carbs cause inflammation. So all of these together have come to normalize the idea that we need to reduce our carbohydrate intake. But like many things in the field of nutrition, this is grossly oversimplified, I guess, because it's easier to just give this one sentence that people could go off of, right? Like it's less energy to put in like, oh yeah, just reduce the amount of carbs you take and you'll get this result. And it's easy. But here's the thing. Carbs is a broad terminology that we use to identify a whole class of molecules. So carbs is not just one molecule. Just to give a broad overview of these classifications is that carbs are mainly divided into two categories, simple carbs and complex carbs. There's also fiber, which falls under complex carbs, but I feel like it should have its own category because our body processes it in a different way. Each class is further divided into a bunch of other categories, which I think is irrelevant to this podcast. What's more important to note, regardless of the category the food belongs to, is that once they're eaten, they're always broken down to simple carbs. We have three types of simple carbs, glucose, galactose, and fructose. And they are what's being absorbed into our blood. So when you eat something that's rich in carbohydrates, they're broken down, they're absorbed into our blood, and that's how um, our blood glucose levels increase after a meal. Once this happens, our pancreas releases a hormone called insulin, and this hormone helps the glucose molecules to move from our blood into the cells so they can be used as energy or can be stored for future use. So if everything's broken down to sugars at the end of the day, why does it matter what type of carbs I eat? Do y'all have these questions? Like, did y'all ever have these questions? Yeah, like, and the worst part is sometimes we don't know what type of carb is inside the type of carb. We just consume it. We don't really give it like a second thought and think, oh, wait, is it like a good type of carbohydrate? Should I be eating this? All carbs are just carbs. <laughs> yeah, it just as long as it's tasty, we eat. Right, then, exactly. You know, think about the consequences. Only until, yeah. you know. And you only that- think of something as sugary if it tastes sweet in your mouth, right? Carbohydrates and sugars being the same thing. I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people they don't know that it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like the tendency to think of like you associate like rice and flour related stuff to mostly carbs, right? Like yeah, exactly. bread, yeah. rice, everything that's yeah. carbs only and others don't fit into that category. So we have that, I guess, misconception about mm-hmm. carbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes, the type of carbohydrate you eat does matter. And to explain this, I have to talk about two metrics. Might sound a bit complicated, but try to stay with me. We have two things called the glycemic index and the glycemic load. They sound very sciencey, but really the, the basic concept is very simple. 
glycemic index tells you how fast a carbohydrate is absorbed into your body as sugar molecules. But knowing how fast something is absorbed into your body doesn't really say much because it doesn't tell you by how much your blood glucose level is affected, right? So that's why we have the second metric, which is the glycemic load. This tells us how fast a carb is absorbed into our body and by how much it affects our blood glucose levels. So why sugars are bad is because sugar, meaning what you have at home, all the sweet stuff, has a very high glycemic index and a glycemic load. This means that once you eat it, it's very quickly absorbed into your body and it affects your blood glucose level by a large amount. But what are the implications for you? Two things. First, um, because it was absorbed fast, you are likely to feel hungry soon after. Second, if foods that have higher forms of glycemic index and glycemic load are eaten more often, research shows that your cells are likely to get insensitive to the hormone that we spoke about, which is insulin. This increases the risk of developing this condition called the metabolic syndrome. The metabolic syndrome is a collection of conditions that increases your likelihood of developing chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. And a bunch of epidemiological studies show that prevalence or the incidence of metabolic disease is steadily increasing. And within the US itself, 32% of the population is considered to have metabolic syndrome, which is kind of concerning. So simple carbs have a higher glycemic index and a glycemic load. But on the other hand, when it comes to complex carbs, they're quite lesser, they're in the mid-range of, of both these scales. This means that they are digested more slowly by our body and therefore is absorbed more slowly into our blood. So you feel more satiated for a longer period of time and the less likely you are to release insulin consistently to your blood because you eat meals and are not snacking between them you're less likely to develop insulin insensitivity according to the scientific literature that I read. So because of this, the type of carb that we consume matters, but we also have to pay attention to the way they are processed. I don't know if y'all have thought of this before, but I heard this girl one time tell that, like, when you eat a burger... Do you think, yeah, I'm getting my carb from the bread and my protein from the meat and, and then there's lettuce and then there's like tomatoes. That's my veggies. No. No? <laughs> I used to think that way. Like, right. Like you think that, like that's, like, I don't think it's a very unique thought to have. I think a lot of people might think that way. But yeah, I guess so, like when you're eating it it's just like oh wow okay this is yeah, a balanced just, meat yeah i guess that's like the general thought that goes into your mind right it's tasty it's a balanced meal great 
Right, except very salty. Because whenever I eat a burger, I feel like I'm eating something really unhealthy, mm-hmm. and I feel bad yeah. for a couple of minutes, and then I'm like, you know what? It's okay. It's just a yeah. one time. I'm not gonna do it tomorrow. Yeah. So I just get rid of that thought. And the the funny part is that them individually and not being in the form that they are, they'd be fine. The processing is what yeah. changed its form, and now together all these processed food. is considered unhealthy. So processing plays a big role in how something's defined as a simple or a complex. So for example, let's take equal amounts of potatoes that are boiled and then fried potato chips. The chips obviously after going through that processing contains now glucose as well as fat and very likely might not be the good type of fat it's likely to be trans fat so when you're choosing fried potato chips over boiled or baked potatoes you are not only eating trans fats which is known to have negative effects you're also consuming more calories per gram than if you were to eat the boiled potatoes or the baked potatoes similarly when carbs have been processed so much so that they don't necessarily look like its original form they're likely to be void of fibers and other associated nutrients that were in the original form and these are usually referred to as refined carbs and examples of these include white bread white rice white pasta and etc so do you all think that they're bad Yeah, I, I love my like, white rice. <laughs> yeah. I do love the taste, but I feel like in terms of the time it takes to digest it, it's harmful for your body. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. true? I have heard yeah. the concept of fast carbs and slow carbs and I feel like white rice falls under fast carbs, right? Yeah. It so the fast carbs fast, so you feel hungry hungrier compared to mm. eating slow carbs. So I I guess like the fast and the slow comes from simple and the complex carbs. Yeah. I actually haven't heard the the terms fast and slow carbs. That's so interesting. I was watching these workout videos and they were referring to fast carbs and slow carbs and how you should shift to slow carbs and reduce your fast carbs otherwise you'll start feeling hungry and then you would want to eat something again even though you that's, were on a diet. Yeah. That's that's also, so Sorry. I've heard of like the red rice, right? The red rice being better than white rice and I feel like yeah. I guess red rice would fall under slow carbs. because it has yeah. fiber i feel like but then again there are types of white rice as well right like depending on the uh, planting so like on the harvesting oh, so yeah. it depends yeah, on the yeah, type yeah. of white rice as well i, I had basmati is good even though it's white rice it's even recommended uh, for diet mm-hmm. white mm-hmm, rice yeah. uh, basmati and red rice wow that's so interesting and yeah red rice is considered um better than white rice because they're less refined so it still has more fiber and anything all the minerals that are associated with that fiber uh, in the red rice going back to the the processing and the refining when something's processed and refined their glycemic index and glycemic load increases and i guess this is what melissa was talking about in terms of white rice being considered a um fast carb fast carb because mm-hmm. once those are removed 
you have rice that contains more simple carbs than complex carbs. So they're broken down and mm-hmm. they're absorbed to your body easily. And therefore, you have the spike in your blood glucose levels. So, yeah, the sudden yeah. spike in glucose. Whereas low carbs, it's like a more gradual release. So your insulin mm-hmm. levels and your sugar levels in your body won't change like drastically yeah. at once. That's true. And, and why it's slow is because it takes a whole lot of time to break down complex carbs yeah. compared to mm-hmm. um, simple ones. Well, um, the takeaway here is that carbs aren't quote-unquote bad or unhealthy. They're actually very important for us because it's our body's main source of energy. There's a reason why an average adult is recommended to eat about 45 to 65% of their daily energy requirements from carbs. And then you have fat, and then the least is actually protein. So that really important. That's the main source of energy for most of the cells in our body, especially those of the brain. So if our body doesn't have enough carbs to make energy, it goes into a state called ketosis. This is basically the foundational science behind the ketogenic diet that's becoming very popular these days. But since it's not within the scope of this episode, we'll discuss that later in the future. And before I end this, let me just give you all a quick rundown of fibers too, because there's a whole lot of fascinating research coming out about the relationship between fibers, our gut microbiome, nutrition, and immunity. If y'all are interested, I'll link some of the articles related to these down below. And y'all can read that on your own until we cover it in a later episode. For the time being, Fibers are a type of carb that our body cannot digest. But that doesn't mean that they're not important. They actually feed our gut microbiome. And our gut microbiome is just a very scientific term that we use to refer to the bacteria that live in our colon. During most times, we have a really good relationship with this bacteria. It's actually called the symbiotic relationship because we benefit them. And they benefit us in the sense they help us control our appetite, protects us against pathogens, helps us replenish ourselves in the colon, and therefore maintains the integrity of the lining of our colon and prevents this condition called the leaky gut syndrome. It reduces inflammation and certain cancerous activities has beneficial effects on brain health as well as mental health via the gut-brain connection, to name a few benefits. Not only are carbs important in terms of nourishing us, they're also important in terms of nourishing um, the microbiome, which in turn again benefits us. So carbs in the general sense are not quote-unquote unhealthy we just have to be more mindful of the types of carbs that we eat and yeah that would conclude this myth we can move forward to the next one okay so i'll be introducing myth number three which is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day so i mean we've all heard of this one right it's (laughs) it's like a common practice for parents to use this phrase when trying to get their kids to start eating in the morning 
But as of recent, there has been some disagreement on whether breakfast should be held to such a level of importance, right? You know, since fasting diets are becoming more popular and some have expressed concerns about the sugar content in the cereals. Um, So some people actually say that this is part of a big marketing strategy made by cereal companies. uh, (laughs) I love that all these myths are coming about because of marketing and and media. (laughs) Yeah, so one academic has even said that eating breakfast is dangerous. Um, So, you know, the real question is, which side of the argument is true? Before we get into answering these questions and these misconceptions, let's first break down the word breakfast and define it. If we break it down into two parts, you can see that it's break and fast, right? So if you put these two words together, they actually mean to break the fast we've had going through the night. So during the nighttime, our bodies use a lot of energy to recuperate, for repairing and for growth. So when we wake up, the blood sugar needed by the muscles and even the brain is quite low. Breakfast helps replenish these depleted energy reserves. Studies also show that breakfast is linked to high concentration and memory, low levels of bad LDL cholesterol, low chances of getting diabetes, heart diseases, and even becoming overweight. So the rationale for the breakfast, you know, decreasing chances of becoming overweight is that since skipping breakfast increases the chances of us getting tired later on in the day, it can consequently lead us to overeat or oversnack on high fat or high sugar food. And for example, so there's this one US study that they conducted with 50,000 participants and they followed them over for a period of seven years. Um, They showed that those who made breakfast the largest meal of their day were more likely to have a lower BMI than those who had a large lunch or dinner. Um, So the researchers basically argued that the breakfast increased satiety, decreased daily calorie intake and improved sensitivity to insulin during subsequent meals. So overall, they argued that it would contribute to a lower risk of diabetes. However, the researchers did admit that the nature of the study makes it somewhat difficult to conclusively say that breakfast was what led to these health qualities. And also like there was a 2016 systematic review um, of 10 studies that indicate limited evidence to support or even refute the argument that breakfast actually leads to influencing our weight or food intake. Um, So they suggested that you need more research um, before making these recommendations of how breakfast should be consumed to prevent obesity. Um, So another interesting topic that I found when researching this, uh, this field was that they spoke about this relationship between breakfast and our circadian rhythms. Do you guys know what a circadian rhythm is? Just sleep cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So the circadian rhythm is basically a 24 hour internal clock that runs constantly and it cycles between alertness and sleepiness. So a randomized control trial that was done with 36 people. So half of them had diabetes and the other half didn't. Demonstrated that skipping breakfast led to the disruption of our circadian rhythms in both groups. 
So this in turn caused their blood sugar level to spike after the subsequent meals. And what they basically concluded was that this spike correlated with increased postprandial, which basically means post meals, a postprandial glycemic response in both the healthy individuals and individuals with diabetes. Um, so the researchers basically said that eating breakfast is necessary to maintain our internal clocks running on schedule. Um, one academic states that breakfast skippers usually fall into two groups, right? So you can either skip breakfast and have your dinner at a normal time. Yeah. And, the, the, and there's another group that skip breakfast and eat late in the night. This is something interesting because it brings me to my next, I guess, counterpart argument of this myth, which is that um, eating late at night is bad and it makes you gain weight. Uh, have you guys heard of that myth? No, not really. I haven't. Yeah, I've, it's, it's somewhat of a, I guess it's like a counterpart myth mm -hmm. of like, um, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. There's yeah. another, uh, there's a group of people saying you really shouldn't eat late at night. I guess some people also eat supper, right? Instead of dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess this relates back to that point. So Various researchers have commented that eating late at night actually leads to higher risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases. And there's this assistant professor of nutrition sciences at the University of Alabama called Courtney Peterson. She states that even though it might seem that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, it might actually be dinner that we must be paying most attention to. Uh, this is because blood sugar is best controlled early in the day, right? And we're most vulnerable to adverse health outcomes when eating late at night, especially because our blood sugar level is very low at that time. So this again goes back to our circadian rhythms. So the prof I just mentioned before, Courtney Peterson, she says to think of the circadian rhythms as being a combination of one master clock of the brain and smaller separate clocks of each organ, right? So researchers, research has found that our master internal clocks are set by outside factors like light exposure and our normal eating schedule. So when we're eating late at night, it basically disrupts our circadian rhythms and our internal clocks are all messed up. And as a result, our metabolism can also uh, go out of sync. So generally, researchers state that eating late at night can impair our blood sugar and even our blood pressure levels. So to sum up, in general, studies indicate that skipping breakfast and eating late at night are to be avoided um, because they're bound to create these negative health outcomes. But there is no hard and fast rule on what we should eat and when we should eat. The general consensus is that we should just listen to our bodies and eat when we are hungry. One professor states that eating breakfast is most important for people who are hungry when they wake up. Mm -hmm. So this is just basically me. Like <laughs> I am hungry when I wake up. Sometimes all I can think about is that I'm really, really hungry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, you should just listen to your body and eat when you're hungry is a general consensus. Um, to sum up, 
we should not overemphasize or overprioritize one meal over another. Um, of course, it's very important to have a balanced breakfast, but the most important thing researchers say is to get regular meals in order to maintain stable blood sugar levels. So that's it for myth number three. Uh, I hope you guys learned something new. Um, let's move on to Randila and myth number four. Moving on to myth number four, which is if the label says no fat or low fat, you can eat all you want. So is it true? So there are a couple of questions that I'd like to ask. Do you all really read the labels on the products you buy? I don't read at all. So I don't really bother to read any label. Yeah. Front. Yeah. If the picture looks good, okay, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of read it. Right. So my next question, do you read the back of the label or do you like look at the advertising part on the front side of the product? That's a good question. I think they always kind of enlarge the advertising portion of it. So your mm-hmm. eyes are naturally kind of drawn to those and yeah. you're like, oh, wow, no fat. That's there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we rarely read the back of the label, right? So like even when it comes like chips or like different crackers that we eat, the biscuits, we look at the non-fat or the low-fat or low-sugar, sugar-free. You know, those kind of the big, the bold, the differently fonted letters that we see on the front side of the package first and we just bite, yeah? So reading labels can be a bit tricky. Yeah. And also, I guess before I didn't used to read any labels, but now I do. But obviously... Uh, some of the things that we do read in the label some of the times we can misinterpret it like Mm -hmm. uh, we can just say oh that's low percentage of fat that's it but if you actually look at the label it's per serving I think yeah yeah, so again you can misinterpret the label yeah so reading labels can be a bit tricky and and because more consumers are health conscious than ever before I must say this Manufacturers use misleading tricks to convince the people to buy the product. So one way to avoid getting hoodwinked by these manufacturers is to avoid reading the front label, but move on to reading the back of the label, which actually lists the ingredients and the composition of the food. So studies have shown that the majority of the consumer's most easily accessible sources of information is the nutrition label. Yet, most consumers do not use these nutrition labels due to the lack of time and due to the difficulties in understanding the information. So obviously, all four of us have the background of health science and we know if you say fat or carbohydrates, we would know what it means. But there are also people who do not have the background information to really read the label and understand, okay, this is in the product and this is not. So this is good for me and that is not, right? Mm -hmm. So... That and also because of the lack of time people are having nowadays with their busy schedules, they'd want to just grab what they actually you they normally buy and then just grab it and go, right? So because of that, although nutrition labels are the most easily accessible source of information, it's not really read by the consumers, right? So another study carried out to study the types of consumers who actually read these food labels 
And they found out that uh, this varied by the several demographic factors. And they found out that people with a higher level of education tend to have a better understanding of nutrition labels and are more likely to use the nutrition information, like I said before. And also they found out that women are more inclined to use this nutrition information than men. And women with children tend to pay more attention to nutrition information than women without children. But also, younger women without children may read the nutrition information for weight control reasons and body image concerns. So these uh, being the types of people who actually read the labels, there are also people who have health conditions and who have several nutrition concerns who also tend to read these labels before they buy the product. So as the myth suggests, one of the common nutrition nutrient claims on labels which would easily trick the readers is the no fat and the low fat notion, right? Mm-hmm. So, so low fat claims were most prevalent for both food and beverages where they had uh, 10% and around 19% of um, less content of fat in both food and beverages respectively. And the amount of other factors like low calories, low sugar and low sodium came below that. So low fat and no fat means that the amount of fat in the product has been reduced, but at the cost of adding more sugar. So this is actually something that I, that I also learned recently when I was doing research on this topic. And I'm sure most of the others who actually, although buys the products thinking that it's actually low fat, doesn't really know that it's been compensated with the amount of sugar that's been added. So this is obviously something that the consumer is not well aware of. So moving on to a condition like obesity, which is very fast moving around the world. And uh, most of the primary messages these people get from the healthcare providers is to reduce their fat intake. However, as said before, most of the low fat food contain high contents of sugar. And although the replacement of fat with sugar doesn't necessarily increase the rates of obesity, the consuming Food that is high in sugar promotes the consumption of excess calories by inducing leptin resistance and increasing the risk of obesity. So what is leptin? Leptin is a hormone that is produced by the body and it helps to regulate the energy balance by inhibiting hunger and it also turns to diminish the fat storage in the adipocytes, right? So inducing the resistance to leptin increases the risk of obesity in humans. So a study that was conducted in 2016 compared the fat-free, the fat, and the regular version of certain types of food using some data obtained from the USDA National Nutrient Database. And those uh, recordings showed that the amount of sugar is higher in low-fat and non-fat versions of the food than its regular version. So if you take something like um, yogurt, plain yogurt, the sugar content in low uh, in in the regular version is 4.66 grams but in the low fat version it's actually 7.04 grams and in the non fat version it's actually 7.68 grams so as you can see they've actually increased the amount of sugar with the reduction of fat so consuming excess sugar even in small amounts is shown to be harmful and it does lead to weight gain diabetes conditions and also diseases related to their cardiovascular health. So as a summary, it is definitely not good to be eating as much as we want, although the label says otherwise. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's true. 
And yeah, that's, that's all the myths that we have for everyone today. So that's all we have for today. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, if this podcast brought you some value, please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends. We have all the links to the sources down below in the description. If you guys have any comments or concerns or questions, please write them down below and we'll get back to them as soon as we can. So until next time, stay happy and stay healthy. Bye. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.